is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 90-1629, United States versus Nordic Village, Inc. Mr. Seaman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case arises under the Bankruptcy Code. The trustee in bankruptcy appointed for the respondent. Mr. Stevens, before you get started, uh, don't our rules provide that uh, briefs should have a uh, summary of the argument? That's correct. Uh, is the Solicitor General's uh, office subject to those rules? Yes, I believe it is. Where is the uh, summary of argument in your brief? It is lacking one, and that is an oversight for which I apologize to the Court. Did you say that again? I didn't hear it. That was an oversight for which I apologize to the Court. The, to continue, the trustee in bankruptcy appointed for the respondent in this case, Nordic Village, brought this adversary proceeding and recovered a $20,000 money judgment against the Internal Revenue Service. The Sixth Circuit upheld the judgment on the ground that the United States had waived sovereign immunity under Section 106C of the Bankruptcy Code. Thus, the issue is whether Section 106C of the Code authorizes a bankruptcy trustee to recover money from the government. This Court previously addressed the scope of Section 106C in a case involving an individual state, namely Hoffman versus Connecticut Department of Income Maintenance. In Hoffman, the Court concluded that Section 106C does not authorize monetary relief against the states. We submit that the same conclusion should apply in cases involving the United States. The facts of this case are undisputed and may be summarized briefly. Nordic Village was a restaurant in Lake County, Ohio, that filed a petition for relief under Chapter 11 in March 1984. After the petition was filed, the IRS filed a proof of claim against the estate seeking payment of overdue employment taxes. Also after the petition was filed, an officer of Nordic Village, Joseph Law, drew a check for $26,000 on Nordic Village's corporate bank account which he used to get a $20,000 cashier's check payable to the IRS. Mr. Law delivered the $20,000 check to the IRS and had them apply it against his personal taxes. The trustee for Nordic Village then brought this action, uh, seeking to recover the $20,000 payment on the grounds that it was an unauthorized post-petition transfer. The bankruptcy court agreed and held that the transfer was voidable and entered the $20,000 judgment against IRS, and the District Court for the Northern District of Ohio affirmed. On appeal to the Sixth Circuit, the government argued that the $20,000 judgment was barred by sovereign immunity. The government relied on the decision in Hoffman. Hoffman, like this case, 
involved a voidable payment of taxes. In Hoffman, as here, the trustee argued that Section 106C of the Code authorized recovery. May, may I uh, just get one factual thing straight, uh, Mr. Seaman? Yes. I gather you didn't make the sovereign immunity argument in the district court. And was the reason for raising it in the Sixth Circuit that Hoffman was decided in the interim? That's correct. So you, in fact, learned that there was an available sovereign immunity argument. I don't think that the government was aware of the availability of the argument before then. Uh, in, in Hoffman, the court rejected the argument that recovery of avoidable tax payment uh, was authorized under Section 106C. In an opinion written by Mr. Justice White, a plurality of the court concluded that Section 106C cannot be construed to authorize retroactive monetary relief against the states. The Mr. Justice Scalia concurred in that conclusion on the ground that Congress lacks authority under the Bankruptcy Clause to subject unconsenting states uh, to retroactive monetary relief. In this case, the Sixth Circuit declined to follow the plurality's interpretation in Hoffman and adopted instead uh, the views of the dissenting members in Hoffman. Thus, the court upheld a judgment against the federal government, uh, which it recognized could not be entered against a state. Do you think the requirements for a clear statement are the same in waiving federal sovereign immunity as they are for finding um, abrogation of a state's 11th Amendment immunity? They are very closely similar and have been described um, in virtually identical terms. Uh, I would suggest that there, is, there may well be some difference between the formulation in the Atascadero case uh, of the clear statement rule uh, and the standard for federal sovereign immunity uh, cited in a case like Ruckel's House. Uh, but I, I don't think that, in any event, I, I don't think that Congress would have discerned a difference between the two statements, especially at the time it was drafting the code. And in any event, I, I think in, in drafting the statute at issue here, clearly it, it didn't intend to have a different rule apply to the states um, as opposed to the United States based on any difference in the, the standards for waiving, for waiving the, uh, the two forms of immunity. Of course, the incompatibility you describe only exists if you assume that the judgment of the court was based upon the rationale of the plurality opinion. There's no, no incompatibility at all uh, if, it, if the judgment of the court is thought to have been based on the rationale of the concurrence. That is to say, it's quite feasible that Congress may, might want to waive its own, its own sovereign immunity, but does not have the power to waive the sovereign immunity of the states. There's nothing uh, strange about that. No, there is nothing strange about that, Your Honor. And in fact, in, in certain other statutes, Congress has drawn a distinction between suits against the United States and suits against individual states. I would cite as an example some of the uh, citizen suit provisions in the, uh, in the environmental statutes, like RICRA and CERCLA. You can bring a citizen suit against the United States and then against state entities to the extent permitted by the 11th Amendment. Uh, but Congress didn't draw the distinction in this case even though it recognized that there were limitations on its uh, power with regard to the states. And I would suggest that the fact that it, it didn't draw a distinction on the face of the statute, but recognized a limit in terms of its uh, power over the states, suggests that it wanted to waive federal sovereign immunity to the same extent it believed it could abrogate state sovereign immunity. May I just be clear on what you just said? You're telling us that in the in the Clean Water Act and those other citizen suit provisions, 
Congress has adopted different standards for the waiver of the federal sovereign immunity from the waiver of uh, the 11th Amendment? Let, let me be clearer than I perhaps was. I'm saying that when Congress is, is legislating close to the limits of what it thinks that its, its constitutional authority is, uh, and it intends to uh, allow actions against both kinds of sovereigns, uh, in certain cases it will, it will embody in the statute itself its recognition that uh, you know, maybe some suits against the federal government would be permitted, even though the same suit wouldn't be permitted and, against and the state. And the Clean state. Water Act citizen suit provision, in your view, is an example of such a situation. I, I'm citing the Clean Water Act provision as an example of where Congress is drawing a distinction of Congress's recognition. Where it's a different rule for whether a federal defendant against a state defendant. It's recognizing that there may be a different rule, and, and perhaps... Well, and I think you said that there was a difference. That's, the, that's an example of a difference. If, if I did, I wasn't being clear enough. Um, what I meant to say was that it's, it's an example of Congress being sensitive to the, to the possible differences that may evolve in the, uh, in the process of construing such a statute. Mr. Siemens, the uh, lower courts found, did they not, that the... Uh, IRS knew or should have known of the transfers by avoidability? It made the latter finding that the IRS should have known. And uh, on what did they base that finding? They based that finding on a notation uh, on the $20,000 check uh, stating that the remitter was Swiss House Inc., which was the doing business name for Norton. And yet you don't mention that at all in your brief, do you? We... I don't believe we state that in the brief. We stated that in the petition. And well, it seems to me it's critical to the lower court's finding, and I'm a little surprised that you haven't mentioned it in the brief. Your Honor, we uh, stated that in our petition to make clear all of the issues that were presented uh, at the lower court, and we also stated in our petition that we uh, do not, at this level, uh, dispute the finding below uh, that the transfer was voidable. The findings by the lower court regarding the notations on the check uh, were part of its holding that the transfer was voidable. That issue is not before the court, and that's why we didn't raise it in our, in our brief on the merits. Uh, it is correct that the incompatibility in this case uh, only exists between the, the result in Hoffman and the result reached by the Sixth Circuit below. Uh, nonetheless, we, we believe that the plurality in Hoffman construed Section 106C correctly. Uh, it does not clearly authorize monetary relief against governmental units. Uh, and because I'm going to begin by talking about the language of Section 106, I would refer the Court uh, to the appendix to our petition at page 57A, where Section 106 is reprinted. Section 106C which is the provision at issue here, was added late in the legislative process. And in some respects, it is not a model of drafting clarity. Uh, therefore, Section 106C is best understood in the context of Section 106 as a whole. Sections 106A and B are the provisions that Congress clearly designed to deal comprehensively with the problem of money claims against governmental units. That is clear because Section 106A and B use the word claim, uh, which is defined in the Code to mean any right to payment. Thus, Section 106A and B considered together 
uh, address all money claims that a trustee may have against the government, whether they arise uh, under a provision of the code um, or come from a source outside of the code. Now, while 106A and B are quite comprehensive in the sense that they address all money claims, they're quite restrictive in setting forth conditions for recovering the money. 106A allows affirmative recovery only uh, when the government has filed a claim against the estate and the estate has a compulsory counterclaim. Uh, That is a very narrow category of cases uh, that would permit affirmative monetary relief of the sort that was awarded here. 106B is slightly broader in scope uh, in as much as it reaches permissive counterclaims, but by the same token it limits the kind of relief available. Uh, Under Section 106B, the trustee can only get an offset uh, of the the estate's claim uh, with respect to the government's claim against the estate. And um, as is clear, 106A and B uh, both apply only when the government has filed a claim against the estate. In in contrast to 106A and B, Section 106C contains nothing that is suggestive of monetary relief. It consists of two subparts, both of which must must be satisfied for 106C to apply. Together, they allow a court to make a determination of an issue arising under any of over 100 code provisions that contain one of three trigger words that are specified in 106C1. The plurality in Hoffman uh, construed the language of 106C as indicative of declaratory relief rather than monetary relief. That is clear in our view, not only uh, under the, on the face of the statute, section 106C itself, but also when 106C is contrasted with A and B. Uh, whereas A and B refer broadly to claims uh, and clearly indicate that Congress was thinking of monetary relief, 106C refers to the courts making determinations of an issue, uh, which is much narrower language. Uh, than the the language of claim used in 106A and B. Now, you make a distinction between the power of the trustee to avoid a transfer and the power to sue for recovery of money. Yes. right? Because the code itself distinguishes those two concepts by treating avoidance, having a separate set of avoidance provisions from the recovery provision. And the transfer section is section 549? Yes, regarding post-petition transfers like this one. And do you think that a transfer could be um, avoided by the court against the federal government if none of the trigger words appear in 549? No, I I don't think that's so. I think that in this case, the significant provision is Section 550, uh, and the fact that Section 550 contains a trigger word uh, allows... Uh, and you think 550 transfers. applies even though none of the trigger words are in 549? That's correct. 550 embraces a variety of provisions that regard avoidance of, of different kinds of transfers. Post-petition transfers like what we're talking about here as well as fraudulent conveyances and, and uh, preferential transfers. We would say that you look to Section 550. Uh, and that, and, and under, uh, under Section 106C, 550 is brought in by virtue of C1, uh, but you must also look to C2 to determine what sort of relief is authorized. Uh, C2, in effect, specifies the consequences of applying C1. 
C2 says that when a, a provision has been triggered, uh, the court in that circumstance can render a determination of, of the issue that has arisen under uh, the triggered provision. And that uh, language regarding determination of an issue, especially when compared to 106A and B, uh, clearly seem to limit relief beyond that contemplated in 106A and B. May I ask you, Mr. Seaman, under your, your theory, they can't recover the money. Supposing the transfer had been, say the government had seized an automobile, uh, just before the, could the uh, debtors of the state get that back? I think I, I would need to know more facts, but I, I believe that yes, because that would be the, the situation essentially in Whiting Pools, where there was a, a, a seizure and distraint of tangible property. In that case, it was immediately before the petition was filed. That, that is that exactly could be restored. what 106C was designed to what do. If they, what if they seized a suitcase full of money? Then I do not think that... Uh, you get the suitcase but not the money, is that you mean? Cases start to get hard when you talk about you know, identifiable funds. Um, I think in, in general, it is the same kind of problem that arises in the 11th Amendment context. You, know, you have Edelman versus Jordan on the one hand and Ex parte Young on the other. And in individual cases, you need to look at the trustee's claim and say, what is, what is he or she really seeking? Is it, in effect, retroactive monetary relief? In general, though, I, I would say that uh, there will be very few claims that would entail the handing over of, of money that will, will be permitted under Section 106C. Uh, the clearest example would be some sort of species remedy where you had rare coins and, and, and those were seized in a, a, a whiting pools kind of situation. Uh, Mr. Seaman, may I ask you a question which may well be answered in Hoffman? I just don't remember. Uh, does the language, any assertion of sovereign immunity in C, have a breadth sufficient to reach uh, monetary recovery? The court did address that phrase uh, in Hoffman, and if I'm recalling it correctly, uh, said that that indicates that 106C is, in fact, a waiver of sovereign immunity but doesn't answer the question of the extent to which sovereign immunity has been waived. Um, it's just insufficiently specific. That's correct. It, it, suspends the, the, it suspends the defense of the defense of sovereign immunity with respect to whatever relief is, is authorized under Section 106C, but you still need to look at the language following that phrase to determine exactly what is, what is authorized. And the, the other uh, indication besides contrasting uh, C with A and B that reinforces the narrow scope uh, of the relief authorized under Section 106C uh, is that C does contain the provision sub, subpart C2. Uh, we think that it is, is improper, as the Sixth Circuit suggested here, uh, to look at the provisions that have been triggered to determine what kind of relief is authorized. Um, rather, you have to go on to C2 and, and determine it by reference to that provision. Uh, if, as the Sixth Circuit was suggesting here, and uh, as the trustee argues, you simply look to whatever relief is authorized in the triggered provision, then subpart C2 becomes super superfluous. It, it then becomes merely a restatement of subpart C1. Is there any explanation, Mr. Seaman? Uh, you say C was... Uh 
C was added after A and B were already in place in the congressional process. Yeah. Why this was added? Yes, the to refer to the legislative history, it, it indicates that 106C was added primarily to resolve a, a conflict among the circuits. Uh, and that conflict had to do with the availability of declaratory relief rather than monetary relief. The, uh, the floor managers of the legislation uh, referred to a case called Gwilliam, which was out of the Ninth Circuit. And the Gwilliam case held that a bankruptcy court could determine whether a tax debt was dischargeable whether or not the IRS had filed a claim against the estate. And, you know, there was contrary precedent in, in the Fifth Circuit, and so 106C essentially codifies the holding in William so that even when a governmental unit has not filed a claim against the estate and brought itself within A and B, it is still subject to declarations by the court, uh, the bankruptcy court, that have to do with the government's rights uh, in property of the estate. So the extent that William is codified, uh, Congress, uh, the legislative history suggests, also intended to allow binding determinations on matters in addition to tax debts. Uh, thus, under the rationale of the way Section 106C operates is that the government is bound by discharges in bankruptcy. If you look through the code, all of the discharge provisions in the various chapters contain a trigger word. And to the extent that a, a government debt has been brought into the estate and is part of a reorganization plan or a, an order of relief or whatever, uh, that is discharged, and the government is bound by that discharge order. Thus, Section 106C, even though it does not authorize monetary relief, nonetheless serves a very important function. Uh, it gives the court uh, a broad array of declaratory types of powers, and it also, in certain circumstances, uh, allows incidental injunctive relief uh, of the sort that was uh, upheld in Whiting Pools. Uh, we, I mentioned Whiting Pools a moment ago uh, to discuss it a, a little further. It, it, it involved tangible property that had been seized prior to the bankruptcy filing. Uh, the seizure was affected by the IRS, and before the seized tangible property was sold, the trustees sought turnover of the property to the estate. Um, in effect, the court was determining in that case, and rather than employ self-help remedies of the type that would be authorized under the tax code, uh, the government had to resort to the bankruptcy code uh, for relief, uh, just like other creditors. The important <coughs> distinction between Whiting Pools in this case is that it involved a tangible property rather than uh, a claim for monetary relief. Mr. Seaman, you have any idea how, how it occurred to anybody to draft C-1 that way? I mean, instead of just mentioning the sections to pick out a couple of words? Well, why would that occur to anybody to do something like that? It's I almost like a game. It's part of uh, — it stems from the fact that 106C was added after all of the rest of the code had been drafted. No, but I mean, why wouldn't you just name the sections instead of instead of, you know, saying — a provision that contains these, what you call, trigger words. It, it, it may well I've never seen a provision like that. that, that uh, nor have I. And it, it may well be that it is a product of, of haste or that, in fact, there are a fairly lengthy list of provisions that include one of these three trigger words. I, I think there are something like 111 in the code. Uh, when you look at what provisions are triggered, there doesn't seem to be any rigorous logic between what was included and what was excluded. Uh, and, and again, I would suggest that there was 
to the extent that it was logical, uh, there was a broader kind of logic going on that Congress started with the Gwilliam case that concerned declaratory relief in the tax area and thought it would be a good idea to generalize that holding so that uh, declaratory relief was available in other areas um, where the government had not filed a claim against the estate and, and thereby brought itself under A and B. You had this uh, conflict in the circuits out there that it wanted to resolve, and while it was at it, uh, it considered what sorts of kind of major actors in the code um, would cover declaratory relief of the, of the sort that it had in mind. I think the only other thing that one can say about what the choice of the trigger words was is that the selection of governmental unit as a trigger word um, is significant in as much as it suggests that where Congress used the term governmental unit elsewhere in the code, it wasn't thinking about waiving sovereign immunity. It had to go back after the fact and add it as a trigger word. That is important in as much as, you know, likewise, in the triggered provisions that address monetary recovery, there, too, Congress was not thinking about sovereign immunity. And that is another reason why it is inappropriate to look to the triggered provisions to determine what kind of relief is authorized. The, the third of the three trigger words, entity, I would suggest, brings in some very important provisions that Congress would rationally have wanted to subject the government to, uh, such as the substance of the automatic stay provision, uh, as well as uh, a code provision which authorizes the trustee to avoid the fixing of certain statutory liens that attach after a bankruptcy uh, petition has been filed. That provision only contains the trigger word entity, and I think it is a situation where Congress chose entity with the idea of having particular provisions uh, apply. Uh, in, in any event, it, it is hard to figure out the logic of the way Section 106C is, is drafted. What you can say about it with confidence is that it does not clearly speak to the issue of monetary recovery. Uh, and inasmuch as it is a waiver of sovereign immunity, uh, Congress uh, had to speak clearly, uh, as it did in A and B, if it intended to subject governmental entities uh, to monetary relief under that provision. And because it is not clear, it cannot be construed uh, in the manner that the Sixth Circuit adopted. Uh, and if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Seaman. Mr. Sickerman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The appellate and appellee in this case have one serious difference. The appellant believes that sovereign immunity exists in all instances under all conditions. The appellee suggests that sovereign immunity doesn't exist under all circumstances and in all conditions. Section 106 of the Bankruptcy Code clearly deals with the topic of a waiver of sovereign immunity, but neither Section 106 of the Bankruptcy Code nor any other provision of bankruptcy law creates sovereign immunity where it does not already exist. Sovereign immunity does not exist to deprive a court of its in rem jurisdiction over that which is in the actual physical custody and control of the court. I'm not speaking about property of the estate and the intellectual control of the court. I am talking about dollars. 
approach of the court below, wasn't it? Please, court, this has been argued in this case from the original complaint. Well, you, you haven't answered my question The answer yet. is, no, the Sixth Circuit decided the case on a sovereign immunity issue. Well, it decided the case based on its construction of the statute. That is correct. And, and it, it, didn't, it didn't decide the case based on the argument you are now making. It didn't reach that argument. Well, all right, but it didn't use it. And it seems, and if, I think what you are arguing would argue for a much broader relief than the Sixth Circuit gave you. It would, and we did. Well, you didn't cross-appeal. Cross no, we did not. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe, Your Honor, that if this money was in the court's custody, that the Sixth Circuit erred. I believe the Sixth Circuit posture that sovereign immunity did not prevent the lower court from awarding relief was a recognition that the money was in the court's custody and that where it was removed from the custody of the court improperly, the improper post-petition transfer by Mr. Law, that what was happening was a restoration to the bankruptcy court of the possession of that which was in the court's possession. This is not a, shall we say, reduction of the money in the federal till because it was a restoration. Now, I'm the first to acknowledge that saying restoration is different from a judgment to pay is a play on words. But the fact remains that the money was being restored to that place where it belonged. What do you think is the closest case from this court that supports your position, Mr. Sickerman? Please, the court, we have the Far East Lines, but we go all the way back to, I think it's Bull v. United States. You say you're saying that is the closest case that supports? That is the closest I can come. There's Bull and there's another case of that same vintage, Your Honor, United States v. State Bank. Now, they dealt with the concept of restoration. They did not deal with pure in rem. The in rem position, the closest we come is the Ninth Circuit decision in Far East, Pacific Far East Lines. And there are other cases such as matter of retail stores delivery. I'd ask you about cases from this court. Bull v. United States is a case. Closest I can come. And it's from this court. Yes, and State Bank. State Bank is a case from this court. Yes, Your Honor. Cites to State Bank are 96 U.S. 30. Bull, Your Honor, is 295 U.S. 247. They're as close as anything we have found. The government position is that sovereign immunity is of such significance that the sovereign is not bound or should not be bound by determinations of courts. The Ninth Circuit in Pacific Far East Lines clearly stated that the sovereign immunity of the United States did not prevent a bankruptcy court from compelling the return of 
property which was part of a bankruptcy estate. Ninth Circuit went on to say that sovereign immunity protects the property which belongs to the government independent of the bankruptcy process, where the property has been transferred from the bankruptcy estate, the bankruptcy court retains jurisdiction. When the property, uh, you, you mean they have the right to get back the same bills that went, that were... Oh, Your Honor, money, if it were my pen, my pen might be identifiable, although this cheap uh, paper made paper made pen, I'm sure there are many of. Where it's dollars, they are fungible commodity. Fortuitously, in the case at Barr in the lower court, as Justice Stevens no I'm sorry. I believe it was Justice uh, Blackman pointed out. The money was clearly traceable in the concept of a fixed number of dollars. Mr. Law purchased, with funds of the debtor in possession that he had no right to do, an official check or money order from the Ameritrust Company in Cleveland. That Ameritrust official check indicated the remitter as Nordic Village, Inc., or Swiss House. I think it said Swiss House as I reflect upon it. Mr. Law took that check down the street and in the city of Cleveland, Internal Revenue to Ameritrust main office, about five blocks, went into Internal Revenue and had gave the check to an Internal Revenue collector and asked that the money be applied to his personal tax obligations. The record below is silent as to who drew what I believe was two or three lines through the name of the remitter. The court below found, and the government has not appealed or made an issue, the government was on sufficient notice of the impropriety of the transfer of these funds that they were coming out of a bankruptcy estate. Would it make any difference when the, whether the government was on notice or not if you're relying on the theory of, uh, what do you say, it is restoration to the estate of something that belongs? I would, say, I would say, Your Honor, if we rely on the theory of restoration and the government had knowledge, we certainly have a stronger entitlement to restoration than if the government were an unwitting party who had been duped. Our well, brief- you'd have a, a, a stronger uh, uh, equitable claim, but it wouldn't be any stronger as far as the doctrine of sovereign immunity is concerned. I mean, you're either, you're either just taking back what's yours or you're taking something that belongs to the United States. And if it's your theory of restoration, it really does. as far as sovereign immunity is concerned, it doesn't matter whether the government knew about it or not, right? court below, trial court, and the district court felt it important to, show, to determine that the government knew because under Section 550 of the Bankruptcy Code, there are provisions where there's a third-party transferee. Let's, let me rephrase that, Your Honor. Where the trustee is seeking to recover money from the initial transferee, Good faith, bad faith, knowledge are unimportant. Where the trustee is seeking recovery from one other than the initial transferee, whether called the immediate or intermediate transferee, a question of good faith or knowledge becomes important. In this case, in the court below, they first found that the government was, in fact, the initial transferee. On the appellant's request, in the district court, 
for a modification of the judgment, then District Court Judge, now Chief District Court Judge Lambros, concluded that either they were the immediate initial, I'm sorry, either they were the initial transferee or if they were the immediate or intermediate transferee, they were on knowledge and had notice. So it's both pieces together, Your Honor. Mr. Sickerman, don't you think that your reliance on Bull against the United States may be somewhat limited by our later decision in the Dahlm case? Yes, Your Honor. Which said that really Bull just applied to equitable recoupment in tax cases. Yes, Your Honor. That is a serious problem. The Court asked what the closest case I could find is or had. That's as close as I can get. What you're saying is it may not be very close, but it's the best you can do? I hate to use the expression standing in these chambers, but it's kind of like horseshoes, Your Honor. That's as close as I can get on that point. We have, going directly to the issue of sovereign immunity and the question of waiver, non-waiver, the plurality and the dissent, or plurality and dissenting opinions of this Court in the Hoffman case appear to agree that 106C of the Bankruptcy Code was a waiver of sovereign immunity with respect to the federal government, in that the federal government, according to the plurality opinion, would be bound by a determination of issues by bankruptcy courts even where the federal government did not appear and subject itself, which of course puts us back to the problem of what is a determination of an issue in 106C. And to deal with that, we really have to start by reading, I think in part I answer Justice Scalia's question about the strange structure of the language of 106C. The Court will indulge me. I have been a bankruptcy practitioner for 31 years. I have lived through the trauma of the 10 years of legislation that started with the Ford Foundation grant. So if on occasion I slip off into what I know, please just check me and say, hey, you're off base. 106C was created in part to cure different arguments. If we go back, the Bankruptcy Commission, whose report was the beginning of the serious legislation that gave rise to the 1978 Bankruptcy Code, perceived a bankruptcy law where the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court would be all-encompassing, or as we called it, pervasive. Any matters arising in, arising out of, et cetera, which this Court found constitutionally infirm and marathon as an improper grant. There was also tied with that a concept of being able to avoid multiple different pieces of litigation in non-bankruptcy forms. When you come back to reading Section 106C1, if you start in a vacuum, which is a peculiar way to interpret a statute, but will help if you will indulge me in my explaining what I believe is meant. If you read 
A provision in this title that contains creditor, entity, or governmental unit applies to governmental units, which is 106C1. Read in a vacuum, unless intended to mean that any provision that says creditor or entity includes a governmental unit, 106C1 has no meaning. If you are going to read all of the words of the statute, then it must mean anywhere the word creditor or entity appears, it is intended to include the governmental unit. If you go on to 106C2, if you come to the conclusion that a determination means any judgment or decision on any issue binds a governmental unit, then you can take 106C and you can say that anywhere creditor, entity, or governmental unit appears, a decision of the bankruptcy court would bind the governmental unit. When we get back to Hoffman, this court is troubled by if 106C says what I'm suggesting it was intended to mean, what is the role of 106A and 106B? The answer lies partly in the fact that when you read 106A, you find the word the claim appearing twice. A governmental unit is deemed to have waived sovereign immunity with respect to any claim against such governmental unit. That was the first claim word. That is property of the estate and that arose out of the same transaction or occurrence out of which such governmental unit's claim arose. The word claim is used in 106A is two different concepts. You have a proof, you have the definition of claim in the bankruptcy code. Section 101.5 defines claim as a right to payment. You also have the writing called a proof of claim, which is dealt with in bankruptcy code section 501 and in rules 3001A. And I should add as a side comment, the filing of a proof of claim needs to be perceived as equivalent to the filing of a short-form complaint for money only in a non-bankruptcy court. Now we deal with what 106A means. If the government files this proof of claim, the piece of paper, because that's where their claim arose, in the bankruptcy court, they have agreed to be subjected to any counterclaim or cross-claim that arose out of the same transaction. The typical compulsory counterclaim provision of federal rules of civil procedure. So that if the government files a proof of claim arising out of a defense contract that has nothing to do with the word creditor, entity, governmental unit. It is filed a proof of claim because the debtor hasn't finished performing on a defense contract. The debtor says, but I have done more work than you have paid for, Mr. Government. You owe me money. Well, that would be the 106A counterclaim arising out of. Interesting if 
we read 106A and don't recognize that the word claim is being used in two different senses, we come to the conclusion that maybe the government doesn't have to file a proof of claim for a 106A waiver of sovereign immunity, which is contrary to every case I've read, which is why I focus on the dual meaning of claim in 106A. There is a third meaning to claim that we need to keep sight of, and that is a claim is a cause of action, as we learned when I was in law school. So each time we see the word claim in 106, we have to think in terms of which meaning is it being used in. When you get to 106B, the offset provision, you have again the word claim appearing twice. Now one of the problems with the word, with the structure of 106B is it deals with an allowed claim. There shall be offset against an allowed claim or interest. Under the provisions, Chapters 9 and 11, and 106 is as significant and applicable in Chapters 9 and Chapters 11 as it is in Chapter 7. If the creditor is scheduled by the debtor for the correct amount and is not scheduled as being disputed, unliquidated, then in that event, under Bankruptcy Rule 3003b1, and Section 502 of the Bankruptcy Code, that creditor's claim is deemed filed, and if not objected to, will be allowed. If we now look at 106B, if that creditor has a deemed allowed, deemed filed claim in a Chapter 9 or 11, and it would be more frequently an 11 than a 9, there are very few 9, and if we did not have 106B, and if we look at 502D of the Bankruptcy Code, a creditor who received a preference or voidable transfer, who does not restore it, their claim shall be disallowed. So if the Bankruptcy Court determined that a governmental agency or unit got a preference, the total claim could be disallowed if the preference were $5 and the governmental unit's proof of claim were $50 million. The failure to return the $5 would be a basis of disallowance of a $50 million claim. Mr. Sickerman, I think the basic argument you're up against here, as you probably realize, is that since A and B specify quite limited bases in which sovereign immunity is, is waived, uh, how can you read C in its much broader language to constitute an across-the-board uh, waiver? Uh, do the, the sections you've just been referring to that would govern the operation of, of A and B, do they contain key words or trigger words such as are contained in C1? Some do and some don't, Your Honor. It is the totality of bankruptcy law. I am aware of the fact that why C is, is, is in there. But you've I mean, got to make us aware of it. I'm trying. Okay. I suggested a few moments ago, Your Honor, I have lived with bankruptcy law. I may jump a little fast, and I implore the court to slow me down when I go too fast. Well, it's not necessarily a question of going too fast, but you only have half an hour. I and uh, I, 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 I presume you're still getting to the I reason. am getting right at it. Okay. You've got about eight minutes left. 
What I'm suggesting, simply put, is the correct reading would be to recognize that 106C is a waiver of sovereign immunity wherever the trigger words appear. In addition thereto, that where the governmental unit filed a proof of claim and the debtor has a counterclaim that is unrelated to the trigger words, that's what 106A is. Where the governmental unit has a proof of claim, whether filed or deemed filed, and there is a set-off or disallowance, that 106B will override 502D, and therefore the government will only have a set-off and not a total disallowance. Taken collectively, it means that C was the intent, which goes right back to where we were with the Bankruptcy Commission, of the broad waiver. Additionally, since it is the federal government whom we are claiming has waived sovereign immunity, and Congress has passed the Bankruptcy Code, that waiver does not have to meet the Atescadero standard. It is a simple waiver. It is here. In substance, the waiver by Congress in 106C is a sufficient waiver of the federal government's sovereign immunity if there is sovereign immunity under the facts of this case, which unfortunately takes us back to the topic of this was property in the custody of the court and has been removed. Mr. Sickerman, could, could you tell me something? What, what puzzles me about 106C is, is, the, is the first phrase of it. Can you explain to me, you know, it says, except as provided in subsections A and B. Now, what the rest of C does, no matter how you interpret the rest of C, what the rest of C does is broadly or narrowly it waives sovereign immunity, right? I mean, that's the only, that's the only thing we're arguing about, whether it does it in, in some limited way uh, as to issues or, or does it broadly. Except is provided. What is the ex how could A and B possibly be an exception to what is done in C? My hypothetical of a government contract claim, Defense Department contract, has nothing to do with any section of the code where the word creditor, entity, or governmental unit apply. Right. The government says this defense contractor didn't finish work on these torpedoes. Right. Therefore, we had to send the torpedoes to somebody else to do. We had a cost overrun as a result of that. We have a claim. The Chapter 11 debtor or the Chapter 7 trustee, Chapter 7 debtor's trustee says, we did more work than we had to. You guys caused all the delay, Defense Department. You owe us for the cost overruns. In fact, you're the guys who ended up pushing us into bankruptcy with your Mickey Mouse games that we couldn't finish your project. So we've got damages for our bankruptcy case having to be filed because of you. 106A says even though you don't have the preference, the trigger words, etc., you have waiver of sovereign immunity if they file that proof of claim. I understand that, but that would not be an exception from C. 
Yes. At all, it'd be in addition to D. I mean, there's, isn't there a difference between in addition to and, and, and exception, except for? Your Honor, there is a difference. Your statement that it would have been prudent to have said in addition to those provided instead of except for. If you, I'll watch my red light quickly. If you take time to read the Bankruptcy Code versus the Bankruptcy Act, you will find the writing style has changed. Speculation is on the eve of passing the act under pressure, IRS people were drafted to help on the drafting. And that explains why there's certain similarity in some of the language in the drafting of the bankruptcy code to the tax code. And it is difficult reading. But I suggest that the accept means in addition to that which is provided. So that under A and B, you have jurisdiction without trigger words, and under C, you have the trigger words. Well, Mr. Sickerman, I would say that the tax code can frequently be difficult, but my experience with the bankruptcy code is that it's frequently garbled, which I regard as quite different than being difficult. Please, the court, that is one topic that I cannot defend. I have said that from 1977 onward. It is garbled. It is difficult reading. It is not straightforward. Fortunately, I don't have to defend the draftsman on that topic in this court today. If there are no other questions, my time is about up. I will rest. Thank you, Mr. Sickerman. Mr. Seaman, you have four minutes remaining. I have uh, three points to make, and I, I can make them briefly. <clears throat> uh, first, in terms of respondents' arguments on the facts, um, they're simply beside the point. If, if sovereign immunity um, has not been waived, then the merits are irrelevant, and that was one of the reasons that we did not raise the question of, about the voidability of the transfer. Second, with respect to the uh, in-rem theory of, of jurisdiction that the respondent is asserting here, whatever its merits, it, it simply doesn't apply. We're talking about money. and. You, there, are, there may be close cases uh, where money is arguably erased, but this is not one of them. The money is... Are you uh, to accept his argument here, uh, I, even if we thought it was uh, pretty good? Uh, even if you thought that, I think that in as much as it wasn't raised below, uh, I, I doubt that the court should entertain it at this point. I have a uh, question of whether we should. Would it change the judgment below if we accepted his argument? The judgment below, in my mind, can't be defended as an exercise of in-rem jurisdiction. No, but that's not my question. The judgment below requires the government to turn over the money that was wrongfully transferred to it, right? And if we accepted his first argument, you'd have exactly the same judgment, wouldn't you? It would seem like to, for it to be an in-rem order, it would have to order the government to turn over the very same dollars uh, that were taken No, if you accepted his argument that the in-rem theory he advances requires the government to repay the same amount of money that would be paid under the, then it would be permissible, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be the same? Couldn't we affirm the judgment has already been entered if we agreed with his argument? I'm not saying we should or would. Yes, I, I believe that's, that is correct. Uh, again, my point would be on the merits of the argument. I just don't think it works certainly here. Um, and in any event, I, I don't think that, as we discussed in our reply brief, there is no in-rem exception to the waiver of sovereign immunity. Uh, in, in the U.S. Code, there is, are examples of instances in which Congress 
has felt it necessary to waive sovereign immunity with respect to certain exercises of in-rem jurisdiction. So the, the two are simply inconsistent. Mr. Seaman, I know you have very little time left, and I don't want you to give me what the answer is, but is there an answer? It would just give me great comfort to know that, that some rational person thinks there is one. The YC says, except as provided in subsections A and B. There is an answer. I, it does not make the except as phrase perfectly grammatical. It, it means that money relief against governmental units is not available except as provided in subsections A and B. Now, while that is, is not grammatically, it was not, the point was not grammatically made, uh, the reason that I, I say is that's, that's what it means, is that the same construction is used elsewhere in the code. Uh, I would refer the court to page 57A of our appendix. We, we reprint section 549 uh, on that, that page. And 549A of the code begins in the same way. It, it, is, it, it is the provision regarding uh, post-petition transfers. And 549A sets forth a general rule for avoiding post-petition transfers. It begins by saying, except as provided in subsections B or C. B or C create exceptions to a general rule. And I would say that the, the same wording does the same thing in subsection 106C. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Seaman. The case is submitted.